picture that you're now seeing is that of uh, of Baliram Hedgevar, who was a medical doctor and uh, who was the founder of the Rastriya Soyam Sevak Sangha in 1925, which he headed until his death in 1940, when he was succeeded by uh, Guru Golvalkar. By his own choice, there are no elections in the RSS. The people trust what the leader decides. So uh, he didn't write much of anything. There are some notes and, and, and uh, written down uh, words he spoke. Pathe, which means tiffin, the, the, the you know, bag of food that you carry along on a journey for on the way. So that, that is rather unremarkable. It has the usual nationalist uh, encouragements. Interesting is that he had been a member of the Bengali revolutionaries. People always hear about the non-violent independence movement, but there was also a movement of armed struggle that initially didn't get very far anyway. So Hedgevar for a short while participated in this and he had certain um, acquired habits from there that you find back in the RSS. Tendency of secrecy. The Bengali revolutionaries never wrote anything down so that the police couldn't find it. And um, so that culture has remained in the RSS. Uh, when I studied them, this was in the 90s, there was still this habit of, uh, well, avoiding uh, written communication. RSS leaders were always on the way from one place to another because they did everything in the form of direct oral communication. Uh, that's important to know, as we shall see. It explains something important, um, namely the um, RSS mistrust of books and of writings in general, which has remained even though its, uh, it's uh, security reason is no longer there. So they started at the security service in a Congress meeting in 1925. This was shortly after the Mopla rebellion. So um, Hindu independence fighters uh, were counting with uh, violence from the, from the uh, Muslim side. And so it was part of their uh, job as uh, security agents to have a uniform and they uh, affect all kinds of uh, military externalities um like they have a brass band and um, they do some martial arts some like harmless martial arts uh, but so this this all more or less fit into the job that they had at the time they um, see themselves as an apolitical cultural movement and what they do is to offer the hindus the one thing that in their analysis hindus have always lacked namely Sangatan or organization. That's why their uh, weekly paper is called Organizer. So his successor was called Madhav Sadashi Golwalkar. He was a professor of biology in uh, Benares in the university. Later, he also studied law. 
1940, he became the successor until his death in 1973. In 1938, he wrote a book, We Are Nationhood Defined, which was datelined on the 9th of November, 1938, uh, which some of you might know, happens to be the same day when a few hours later in far away Nazi Germany, the Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass took place, which was an anti-Jewish pogrom. So he didn't know about this. This was going to happen, uh, but that was after his time. Okay, so um, in 1940, Dr. Hedgevar was succeeded as head of the organization by Madhav Sadashiv Golvalkar. Sadashiv Golvalkar. And um, Golvalkar was an associate professor of biology at Benares Hindu University. That's why he was called teacher, that is to say, Guruji. And um, in 1938, dateline was 9 November 1938, he wrote this booklet, uh, We Our Nationhood Defined, which was published in 1939. It went through uh, four prints. The second print was a new edition in which the four words by M.S. Ane that had figured in the first edition was suppressed. And there were a few aesthetic uh, improvements in the second edition. So that remained through three more prints. And the last one in 1947. And in 1948, there was a crackdown on the Hindu organizations because of the murder of Mahatma Gandhi. So all the uh, copies still extant were impounded and after that it was never reprinted again. So the vast majority, 99.9% of Hindu activists have never seen the book. What uh, he did, uh, he spent some time in prison after the Mahatma murder uh, which he had no hand in. But um, afterwards, he made himself useful by making the organization a lot bigger and creating also a number of linked uh, related organizations like a student wing, a trade union, a tribal welfare organization, and so on, and also a political party, the John Sang, which was founded in 1951 and uh, which was the earlier incarnation of the Bharatiya Janata Party, the present government party founded in 1980. In 1966, a second book of his came out, Bunch of Thoughts. And that book could perhaps be said to be the, uh, I will not use Christian terminology like the Bible of the RSS, but at any rate, that's a book that most members have gone through that still uh, is valid. So there are two things that in all the introductions about the RSS you're going to find. Uh, one is that one of them killed Mahatma Gandhi. So Gandhi was murdered by Naturam Gose, 
who uh, had been the editor of a newspaper called Hindu Rastra. And uh, he had been a leading RSS member years before, but formally no longer because he had opted for participating in politics, which he did via the Hindu Mahasabha. But ideologically, he stayed entirely true to the RSS vision, which is why on the way to the gallows, he sang an RSS song. So many people say, ah, see, the RSS is guilty of the Mahatma murder. Now that, of course, is uh, strictly entirely untrue because uh, the organization is not responsible for everything that all its members or even ex-members do. And indeed, the, uh, the RSS, like most uh, human beings, could perfectly well foresee that the murder of the Mahatma Gandhi by a Hindu would have a negative effect on the Hindu position in politics, even as it turned out, uh, a, a judicial effect. So uh, most of the Hindu leaders would be imprisoned. There would be house searches and so on. All their uh, offices were closed down and so on. So the RSS didn't want that. And indeed they had the wind in the sails in 1948 because Congress had lost uh, or had, had lost credibility because of the partition which took place in 1947. You see, they had promised to united India and then at the last moment, they had given in to the Muslim League that demanded Pakistan. And the um, partition, of course, as you know, uh, took an enormous death toll, created a lot of refugees. So there was a great resentment among Hindus. And so an effective Hindu political organization could have banked on that and grown much more important politically. So that didn't happen at all because of the murder. Then there is a second thing that is always said about the RSS that you will find in 99% of the introductions. It is that in the booklet, we, our nationhood defined, Golwalkar had espoused national socialism. So that's what this talk is about. Uh, did Golwalkar effectively do that? So there are essentially two paragraphs in the whole book. There's not much else you can find that, that could be incriminating. But um, there are two paragraphs that are always quoted. And so the, uh, everything that can be said about the Hindu movement, including the performance of the BJP government today, like uh, 80 something years later, are still explained through those two paragraphs. So this must be an extremely important book. And indeed, uh, Akshaya Mukul in the Times of India has written that we is considered the basic charter of the Sangha. Now, by whom is that considered? You know, by his own kind of people, perhaps this is indeed considered the basic charter of the Sang. Only the Sang must never have heard of this because, of course, you cannot find in any formal constitution of the Sang or something. We consider the book we as our basic charter. And indeed, they never refer to it anymore. And already since 1948. 
So whether it is a stark ignorance among the younger generation of journalists or a deliberate lie, which is not uncommon among secularists, this is at any rate not true. This is not the basic charter of the song. The song was founded in 1925. This book was written in 1938. That's a bit late for being a basic charter. But moreover, it just doesn't play that role. It is not known to anyone. Nobody ever takes it as justification for some policy line or other. Essentially the same claim that the, uh, the book We played a central role was continued in a later article of the Times of India, namely that the RSS officially disowns Kolvalkar's book. This was in 2006, a hundred years after the birth of Golvalkar. So the RSS used the occasion to publish the collected works of Golvalkar. And so on that occasion, it was asked about the intellectual and ideological legacy of Golvalkar. And of course, questions were asked about we are nationhood defined. And so the RSS said, no, 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 we, we disown this book. There'll be a special meaning to the word disown as we will see later. But so at any rate, they, they dissociate from this book. Now, in fact, they had done that already in 1948. So uh, presenting it as if, as if this was a new development can only be written by people who just don't know the, the matter or who have ulterior motives. But maybe it's, it's a good thing at least that they said it explicitly and that ever since the secularists have given up on uh, uttering this uh, slander. Well, I don't know if you're laughing, but that was a joke because the secularists have, of course, simply resumed making the same allegation that we is the essence of RSS thought and that everything that uh, Narendra Modi does can be deduced from uh, we. But um, at least, you know, for, you know, people who are more serious, you could expect that after 2006, they would indeed no longer associate the RSS with um, this, uh, this booklet. Indeed, in, um, in the 50s, Golovakar himself had objected when other RSS people wanted to republish the booklet uh, because he said it was a bit immature. See, he wrote it when he was still a young man and many things had happened in between. And so he said, well, let's forget about it. So this hasn't worked in terms of publicity. The enemy is still associating the RSS and the BJP with this booklet. But we know among us that the book is old hat. So the original uh, edition was indeed immature in a, in a general human sense. In a, you know, any writer would consider it immature in the sense that its language was a bit intemperate. And indeed, this is also remarked by the uh, writer of the foreword, this M.S. Ane. He, uh, he was a professor at the time, 
And so when you ask someone to write a foreword, it is bad form to then not publish the foreword. So clearly, Golwakar had been in that position that he had asked for a foreword, that he didn't really like the foreword, but it would be bad form not to publish it. So in the first edition, it was there. In the second one, no longer. And that could be justified in the sense that the intemperate language that had been criticized by Arne uh, had been cleansed a bit in the second edition. The, um, you know, that's his individual immaturity in writing styles. But you could also say that the, uh, the whole train of thought expressed in that book is, well, you know, leaves much to be desired. And uh, maybe in the India of those days, it was not that bad either, because a number of people who, who wrote books that are still known uh, were not that original either. Like uh, when you read Nehru's, uh, read Nehru's books about Indian history, they are a copy of the colonial view of Indian history. And uh, when he did any political thinking, he swore by Fabian socialism, which he had learned in his time in Cambridge, which was not very original and certainly not beneficial to India's economy. Subhas Chandra Bose, much uh, idealized these days, was of course a hero, was uh, brave and so on. But nevertheless, his uh, political thinking is also a bit immature. He dreamed of a synthesis of communism and fascism in the 1930s. So, well, comparatively, Wolwalkar doesn't do very bad, but okay, uh, not very good either. But anyway, this book is not being criticized because it is not very good or because it is immature or so. We will see why the book is always brought up. Uh, so he thought uh, that he wasn't doing anything except actualizing to the Indian situation the thoughts about nationhood that were flourishing at that time in the democratic states. It is important to mention here, democracy being uh, an opposite from national socialism. You see, he explicitly bases himself on the ideas living in democratic states that he finds just totally natural. Next, the RSS is often accused of following the leader principle. And indeed, sometimes you hear this in RSS discourse that they speak about you know, follow one leader. And um, RSS rank and file often have a very meek mentality, you know, a follower mentality. And so in, in that sense, in that you know, vague psychological sense, you could speak of a leader principle. But you know, there is no leader principle in the sense of you see, states must be organized according to the leader principle. Uh, on the contrary, uh, Golwakar always took the democratic model for granted. 
And so when the Indian Republic was declared, he had criticism of its, uh, its secularism, its, its lack of uh, Hindu inspiration, but not uh, of democracy. See, democracy was just there. I won't say that the Hindu movement fought for democracy. Uh, that was not its focus, but it certainly didn't fight against democracy. It never made democracy an issue, though that could easily have been done in the 1930s, democracy seemed to be on the way out. You see, people thought that fascist Italy and Nazi Germany and the communist Soviet Union were success formulas, that they were doing well, whereas uh, France, England were on the way out, or that's how it seemed. You see, that impression existed. And so there were very many people, like for instance, the king of my own country, Leopold II, uh, believed in a strong government. And you see this all this uh, chaos of the parliamentary system. They thought that that was outdated, that it had proven not to work. So Golwalkar did not participate in this movement at all. Um, he uh, accepted democracy as it was, and then he set out to define Hindu nationhood within that uh, democratic model. And so there he takes inspiration from the experience of Western nation states. Next. Golwalkar is very venerated by the RSS and um, it is a bit of a, well, it's very predictable that in all RSS places, you find these big photographs of founder uh, Dr. Hedgevar and then Guru Golwalkar. But uh, in the BJP, for example, you will never hear references to Golwalkar. Uh, also because he's a bit, uh, well, a bit problematic as a face to, to be presented with, precisely because they know that the whole world will immediately say, ah, Golwalkar was a Nazi. Ah, this proves that Narendra Modi is also a Nazi. And so they avoid him a bit. He has become an embarrassment. Anyway, that is all to be reduced to these two paragraphs in this book. Next. So here we go. The uh, first quotation is the following. The non-Hindu peoples in Hindustan must either adopt the Hindu culture and language, must learn and respect and hold in reverence the Hindu religion, must entertain no idea but those of glorification of the Hindu race and culture. They must not only give up their attitude of intolerance and ungratefulness towards this land and its age-old traditions, but must also cultivate the positive attitude of love and devotion instead in one word, must cease to be foreigners. That's what he really wants. You see, he says very explicitly that he wants effectively to assimilate the uh, minorities into Hindu society. You know, there is absolutely no uh, word of uh, genocide, of course not, but not even any exclusion, any denial of rights to the minorities as long as they merge into the Indian nation, they uh, stop any kind of social or territorial separatism. 
you see, if that doesn't work out, if that basic uh, political program somehow doesn't work out, then they may stay in the country wholly subordinated to the Hindu nation, claiming nothing, deserving no privileges, far less any preferential treatment, not even citizens' rights. So this does again not mean that they're going to be expelled. This does not mean that they're going to be thrown into the Indian Ocean or that they're going to be gassed or something. No, they stay in the country. They have rights in the sense of right of life, rights of liberty and so on, the same as everyone, but not voting rights. Uh, so they're treated as guests rather than as full citizens. So that's uh, something else than what happened to certain minorities in Nazi Germany, as far as I know. So this is claimed to be a, um, a call for genocide of the minorities, holocaust of the minorities and so on. Well, the text is very implicit that that is not at all what it wants. It agrees to let them stay in the country, even if they have a social separatism, even if they do not merge into the nation, even then they may stay in the country. Only they cannot determine the policies of the country. That's all. So, you see, I find this a bit, I mean, I don't want that, you see, that, that people who are just members of the nation are somehow excluded from political rights. But at any rate, it is far, far, far less atrocious than is usually presented. And of course, this is something that Golwalkar wrote in 1938. That is not the political line of the RSS today, much less of the governing party. So, in fact, what he does propose for the recalcitrant minorities, not for the minorities in general, but uh, for those who insist on being separate, well, he pro proposes for them a, con a condition of dimitude. That is what exists in Islamic states what Hindus have suffered for centuries, um, namely that they can, that the minorities can live under Muslim rule, but with uh, severely curtailed rights, with of course no right at all to participate in uh, government, no right to bear arms, a number of humiliating conditions, but they can survive, they're allowed to survive. So, what Golwakar proposes is a very mild form of this dimitude. Uh, of course, uh, the discriminations under real dimitude are a lot uh, sharper than what Golwakar proposes. So I would expect in a normal world that all those who criticize Golwakar for this mild dimitude would also come forward and criticize the far sharper dimitude in Islamic states. But I haven't heard of that. So again, you see, this is a condition that I don't favor, but it is completely different from the gas chamber picture that 
these secularists like to make of it. The second quote, and this is now very popular, um, namely, it is now probably the most quoted line in connection with any aspect of uh, Hindu nationalism. This is in 1938, I remind you. German race pride has now become the topic of the day. To keep up the purity of the race and its culture, Germany shocked the world by her purging the country of the Semitic races, the Jews. Race pride at its highest has been manifested here. Germany has also shown how well nigh impossible it is for races and cultures, having differences going to the root, to be assimilated into one united whole, a good lesson for us in Hindustan to learn and profit from. And let me first say something about the word race. You see, in India, they have been using the word race often as a translation of jati, a birth group, which is sometimes in other contexts translated as caste. But it didn't have the kind of biological meaning that it had acquired meanwhile in Europe. Like when Sri Aurobindo in about 1920 writes about the Aryan race, he means very exactly the Hindu people. And so Aryan was for him a synonym of Hindu. And indeed, that's, for instance, how it is used by uh, Rudyard Kipling in his poem, where he speaks of Aryan Brown. Yeah. Here lies a fool. You see, this is about a Westerner who tries to turn the natives into Westerners. And so uh, he gets defeated ultimately by Aryan Brown. That's what uh, Kipling says. So here he describes the Indian race, which physically is much darker than the Aryans that uh, Hitler dreamed of. So Aryan race simply meant Hindu people, and they don't have to be recruited on the basis of some racial purity or so. No, they're just the Hindu people that happen to exist, no matter what exactly their race. So you see here, you have one of the many cases where Hindus don't exactly understand what is going on in the West. In the reverse direction, of course, is much worse. The average Westerner knows much less about India than Indians know about the West. But so, you see, it, it happens uh, regularly that uh, Indians just misunderstand what is happening in the West. And so this, all this talk about race in the West had taken a different turn from what they were used to in India. You see, whatever else you can say about the RSS, uh, it's not about race. So let's look at this passage. Let us first of all, take a look at not what it says, but what it fails to say. Does Golovalkar say, I am a Nazi? Or does he say, Nazism is the answer for India. No, he does not say that. The word Nazi or National Socialist, of course, is absent. He speaks about Germany at that time. 
The name Adolf Hitler, of course, is also completely absent. And uh, that regime, that ideology is simply not what he wants to talk about. By the way, if Hitler and National Socialism aren't there, uh, that's not because uh, he wanted to look good or something. At that time, it was perfectly acceptable to praise Hitler. Like, for instance, Lloyd George or Winston Churchill, or uh, at that time still a student, but uh, still uh, also remarkable, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Uh, they all praised Hitler. And so Germany was doing fairly well. You see, its economic revival was remarkable. And so a number of foreign leaders uh, just praised that without foreseeing what was going to happen later. So Goldwacker could have gotten away with praising Adolf Hitler or the German regime. Well, he does not do that. So it is quite on the contrary. He makes a contrast between the Hindu solution and the German or rather the Nazi solution. He says that Indians have their spiritual giants to turn to, the uh, gurus, the thinkers, the sages that uh, dot the landscape of uh, Indian history, who, according to Golwalkar, stalk the world in serene majesty and who serve as homegrown role models uh, for modern India. You see, he does not at all uh, favor the, uh, the violent and the, the strong arm tactics, nor the uh, philosophy of survival of the fittest and so on, that are the core of National Socialism. So he, um, in his conclusion, he gives a rather un-Nazi vision of, and I quote, one glorious, splendorous Hindu nation benignly shedding peace and plenty over the world. That's what's in the book. So that book is not really something to be very ashamed about. It's not, uh, not too original, really. But at any rate, it's benign. Goldwalker supported the idea of assimilation of minorities. Like, um, at that time, there was such an issue uh, very much in the news. The German claim on Sudetenland, which is at that time a part of Czechoslovakia. So Germany said, well, there are Germans living in there. They belong in Germany. And uh, against that, the Czechs had wanted to, but failed that they had come too late uh, in doing that. Uh, they should have assimilated the German minority, making checks of them. So that's the homogenization policy that was pioneered by France. You see, during the French Revolution, uh, there were, well, not even half the population of France spoke French. There were Bretons and Flemish and Germans and uh, Basques and Catalans. And so from that point onwards, 
the French state throughout all its uh, changing regimes always pursued this pol policy of homogenizing its population, certainly linguistically. So school was, uh, was compelled to be in French. And so after two generations, all these non-French speaking uh, Frenchmen became fully French. Whether that is a desirable policy, that I will not say. But at any rate, that was a policy that was very much accepted in democratic states that was advocated by Czechoslovakia. And so the failure of the Czechs to live up to that idea uh, led to the fact that the Germans stayed German and wanted to join Germany. And that Germany had a sort of legitimate claim on that population and their lands. And so it ended up with a secession of the Sudetenland that was annexed uh, by Germany. The Muslim League at that time also knew about these events and it saw the secession of the Sudeten Germans that weren't Czech, that didn't somehow belong in Czechoslovakia. So their secession as a great example of how Indian Muslims did not belong in India and therefore should separate from India. So Golovakar takes the opposite position, the non-Nazi position. Uh, but you see, he, he accepts that, you know, facts like what happened in Sudeten Germany, again, illustrate that different nations can't live together in one state. Either a minority gets assimilated into the majority so that you get one nation within the existing borders, or the reverse happens. It is the borders that are changed while the minorities remain themselves. So um, at any rate, two nations within one state, that he doesn't believe. And so that's a policy that has effectively uh, being pursued by many states, mostly democratic states. And so that is the lesson for us in Hindustan to learn and profit by. And so there are all the time in the news uh, uh, instances of uh, ethnic conflicts uh, resulting from the fact that different nations are forced to live in one state. So the example at that time most discussed was Germany. Now, in what sense is Germany a model that India should learn from? Well, not that people in India knew much about it. And certainly this whole history of anti-Semitism they didn't understand as a typical uh, Christian phenomenon. But um, very vaguely this much was known that the Nuremberg laws of 1935 had clearly demarcated the Jewish population from the German population. It defined the Jews as a separate nation. Like for instance, Jews were not expected to wave the German flag, though they could use the Jewish flag, the, um, the, the six-pointed star. But so they were separated. And um, 
even the Orthodox within the Jewish community generally welcomed this because they saw uh, with some distress that Jews were getting modernized and were leaving the fold of the Jewish community, were intermarrying with Germans, were starting to live like modern Germans and so on. So this would throw them back into Jewish separateness. And then, of course, territorial uh, separation was encouraged by Jewish uh, emigration. That's how far it went, you see. There was no locking up of Jews at that time. There were no concentration camps specifically for Jews. There was certainly no extermination program. That extermination program was German policy in 1941 to 1944. So that was not at all um, an issue. In fact, there is a memorandum by Heinrich Himmler, who was the uh, mastermind the organizer of the Holocaust from 1940, in which he uh, rejects mass slaughter as a solution for dealing with minorities. At that time, it was the Poles that he was writing about. But his general view on minorities is that, well, we can't go kill them. This is a Bolshevik method. You see, in Ukraine, only a few years before, there had been the hunger genocide or Holodomor, where Stalin had killed effectively through, uh, through famine uh, a few million of Ukrainians. So with that in mind, uh, Himmler recoiled from this. He said, you see, this is un-Germanic. We can never do that. It is Bolshevik. So it took the war and certain developments within that war to make him change his mind and then the Holocaust did take place. But so in 1938, there were no talk about the Holocaust. Many uh, of these critics of Goldwalker say, oh, look, you know, here he is, he is advocating the Holocaust. The Holocaust was just not there. And it's, it's a very, uh, very low level of mendaciousness. I mean, anyone who knows chronology would know that 1938 comes before 1941. That's not difficult to understand. But so uh, as soon as uh, National Socialism is mentioned, reason and common sense tends to go out the door, then hysteria reigns and anything is possible. So um, what also happened in the Nuremberg laws, this is something that Goldwalker probably didn't know about, the participation of Jews in a number of uh, professions was curtailed. And interestingly, this was uh, justified by an idea that you now hear a lot in uh, advocacy for affirmative action or reservations, as they are called in India, namely that underrepresented groups should be better represented. Now, at that time, in uh, the legal profession or in um, medicine, Jews were very overrepresented. So from a German perspective, this meant that non-Jewish Germans were underrepresented. So they said, okay, you see, we have to diminish the participation of Jews just to do justice to the non-Jewish Germans. So the... Um, the reasoning behind affirmative action 
was strangely present in this very early stage of national socialism. That, that, that could have been brought to bear on the Indian situation, but yeah, Golwakar doesn't do that and he probably didn't know about it. So there is no plea for the extermination or the expulsion of the minorities. That what the, the Nazis did in the 40s to the Jews is not at all present in Golwakar's thinking and hasn't been in Hindutva thinking since. I've been to a number of Indologist conferences in the West, and I remember that in the 90s, it was quite common to hear people say, you see, you know, during the break, uh, having tea, uh, talking to each other, they said, you see, it is quite possible that the BJP is going to come to power, and who knows what will happen. They will come down on women, and they will come down on Dalits, and they are going to throw the Muslims into the Indian Ocean. You know, gas chambers for Muslims. That was said in all seriousness by very serious experts. Now, that didn't happen under the Vajpayee government, 98 till uh, 2004. It is still not happening under the Narendra Modi government, but none of them has apologized. None of them has taken his words back. None of them has published a, a meditation on how could we be so wrong? How could we think that the Hindutva forces were a danger when they're in fact pretty middle of the road? Anyway, so um, this, uh, this very extremist thinking is not there in practice, but it was not even there in uh, Golwalkar's book. There is um, something very un-Nazi about uh, Golwakar's approach, which is that he thinks in terms of assimilation. He wants the minorities to assimilate into the, what he calls the nation, effectively into the majority, uh, into uh, Hindu society, which is exactly the opposite of what Hitler wanted. Hitler wanted to dissimulate you see, the Jews at that stage were very much part of German society. It had been already since the 19th century. There was only this, you know, citadel of, of the Orthodox. But in the main, you see, Jews had pretty much assimilated into German society. And the first um, program of Hitler was to stop this, to dissimulate the Jews from the Gentile Germans. Whereas Golwalkar wants to do exactly the opposite, and the Hindutva movement in all its uh, different uh, currents has essentially always wanted that to assimilate to different degrees. There are different formulas, but at any rate, to assimilate the minorities into Hindu society. That may mean reconversion to Hinduism, that may mean anything softer than that, but at any rate, to minimize the distance between the minorities and the Hindus. So it's exactly the opposite from what uh, Hitler had in mind. Uh, there are, in fact, also other points where, uh, where he differs from the Nazis, like, for example, obviously, the um, 
the Nazis were in favor of the white race. Well, Kolvalkar, you know, has his uh, comments on whites that they don't understand that you see Indians with their brown skin color sometimes have a wiser uh, solution for life's problems than the Westerners. Uh, so it's not that he takes white as superior. I mean, that may be obvious, but if you're going to argue that he took inspiration from National Socialism, well, then you'll have to take into account that that point uh, militates against this view. Did Goldwalker support the German hatred for the Semitic uh, people, the, the Jews? Well, of course not. The Hindutva movement in general, including Golwalkar inside the same booklet B, takes the Jews as a model. And so you can still hear it all the time uh, among Hindus, especially when they speak about the language issue. You see, they want Sanskrit to be the, uh, the link language of India. And then they can't help wondering so how could the Jews make Hebrew a lost and forgotten language into their mother tongue, their first language, when India doesn't even succeed in making Sanskrit the second language for uh, Indians. But so they look up to this, they, they look up to the, the, the incredible uh, daring of the Jewish state, to see how they managed to uh, survive in a very hostile environment, how they succeed in industry and so on. So the Jewish nation has always been an example for the Jews. They also have common enemies like uh, the Christian missionaries, uh, the Islamic terrorists. So in spite of the very different theology of Judaism versus Hinduism, Jews and Hindus have a lot in common. And so that is uh, that's the guiding thoughts among the uh, Hindu activists. The, it is also the BJP that had always advocated diplomatic relations between India and Israel when Congress prevented that uh, up to 1992. And so on, they're also proud, the Hindus are proud of always having treated the Jews well you see, better than Christians or Muslims. And indeed, this is reciprocated. The uh, Israeli ambassador has said that uh, India is the only country where Jews have never been persecuted. So this absolute core idea of national socialism, namely anti-Semitism, is not there in Golwalkar at all. He did not share this idea at all. Well, um, Yes, here I reiterate that Zionism, uh, the uh, Jewish nationalism, that that has always served as a light beacon for the Hindu movement. Uh, Vinayak Damodar Savarkar, in his book Hindutva, that launched the political term Hindutva, spoke out also in, in favor of the Zionist project. And um, Golwalkar, strongly advocates the idea that every nation should have its own state. So this is the basic idea of Zionism. And so some scholars have also made the uh, comparison, have said that uh, Hindutva is essentially Hindu Zionism.
the uh, idea of uh, creating an impression that Hindus are anti-Semitic, even though this is completely uh, wild, completely uh, implausible, uh, has nevertheless been pushed by some leftist acad uh, academics in uh, the United States, because there you see they are aware of the strong power that Jews have in the media, in academia, and so on. And there they think it is important to um, turn the Jewish component of society against Hindu Trump. And so that's why you see they create all these, uh, this propaganda that uh, Hindus follow Hitler and so therefore implicitly also follow his anti-Semitism. That's not the case at all. Yeah, so um, here I uh, have to um, reiterate that much of the propagandistic value of this line depends on people's ignorance, namely of simple chronology. Bolwakar is writing in 38. He did not know yet what was going to happen in 1941. And if you think you know three years in advance what is going to happen, then I'd like to hear your predictions for three years from now. If we are serious, we will treat this booklet, we are just a, a document from history, uh, a part of the development of Hindu nationalism long, long, long ago, of which the relevance today is very, very limited. You know, historians may deal with it, but in practical politics, it has no importance at all. You could say that it was an immature thing, uh, you see, to say that uh, the minority should not have citizens' rights. Well, I, I disagree. But the RSS has indeed also outgrown this idea. So that's, that's good about it. And so it is uh, good that at least in 2006, to a journalist of the Times of India, the RSS spokesman has said that they have uh, outgrown uh, this booklet. Uh, so if, if that were then followed up by scholars, by journalists and so on, it would be very nice. That's of course not what has happened, but at least among us, we can congratulate ourselves that the RSS can no longer be associated with the contents of we, even though we is far more innocent than people make it out to be. Now that's not the end. This ought to be the end of my conclusion, but there is a little postscriptum. You see, now the RSS could have said, aha, uh, Goalka wrote his book and it's not so bad. This book is not so criminal. You know, let's, let's just uh, celebrate that and then turn the page. But that's not at all what the RSS has done. In, um, you see, everything that I've told here, I've written in my book, The Saffron Swastika, The Idea of Hindu Fascism, in 2001. So this was all available. The RSS could have read it, could have changed its thinking about we accordingly. What they did instead was this. In 2006, they brought the 100th anniversary, the centenary of Guru Kolwalkar, 
they brought out the complete uh, works of Golwalkar, in which this booklet V was missing. Because they said this book was not written by Golwalkar. And this they prove by the fact that Golwalkar admits in his book that he has taken some inspiration from Ganesh Damodar Savarkar, the brother of Vinayak Damodar Savarkar, who had written a book about nationalism, uh, much inspired by the Italian nationalists uh, during the, the day of the um, Italian reunification in the 19th century. So yes, that's one source of inspiration, but that doesn't mean that he hasn't written this book himself. Indeed, in the, uh, the preamble of the book, he, he lays the booklet down as a present at the feet of Mother India. And then he signs it with his own name. And the book is published under his own name. And there is nothing about the book that suggests that it was not written by him. It is, of course, also different from the book written by Savarkar. So, of course, nobody's going to believe that, that it was not written by him. But you see, this is, uh, I'm afraid to say, uh, or I'm, I regret to say, a, a typical uh, RSS trick that, you see, they think they are very clever, but of course, everybody sees through it. They're not fooling anyone. Everybody assumes correctly that his book, We Our Nationhood Defined, was written by Kohlwalker, and that anything good or bad you can say about the contents of the book has consequences for how we see Kohlwalker and how we see the RSS movement. But only their own rank and file, who are very, very, very loyal to their organization, they lap up this idea that, oh, it was not written by Kohlwalker. And so I've seen many times this discussion uh, that somebody uh, quotes uh, from we and that then the RSS will say, oh no, no, but that wasn't written by Goa, we have nothing to do with it. And then they are laughed at and their, their, their lie, it's not their own lie, it's the RSS's lie that its followers uh, reproduce. Okay, that lie at any rate is pinprick. So they only set up their own followers for defeat. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's absolute buffoonery. It is far better to recognize that this book was written by Golwalkar, that it's not so terrible as it is made out to be, and that at any rate, it has been disowned in reality in 1948, and at least formally in 2006. And so it is history. Uh, we can now finally turn the page and forget about it. Thank you very much. It was a very nice presentation, demystifying a lot about uh, Sir, uh, Guruji Golwalkar. Uh, uh, if you permit, I will ask questions in the present context. May I? Not really. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, uh, very recently, uh, President Sarsang Chalak uh, Mohan Bhagwaji made a uh, speech in which he uh, mentioned about Ganwapi Mosque and they said, no more Andolan. And then he also said, uh, you know, words to that the effect that uh, don't look for more uh, shivalingas in more mosques and things like that. 
then he also said you know he uh, very emphatically referred to the our ancestors being uh, the same purvaj you know he used yes. purvaj we are same, same dna uh, same, same dna then very recently he also uh, uh, what do you call opened the body what is that uh, the book book release function written by one dr iftekar choudhury which uh, i i read through so all these what what is happening within the rss thinking now are they are they moving away from their core uh, ideologies becoming more and more mm. type secularist type uh, whereas uh, on the other side the islamic uh, leadership is uh, hanging on to their uh, core philosophies so what yeah. is uh, this is this is uh, uh, very perplexing for me whether the developments in the country as of now right no they are not the same they have evolved you see this is the funny thing about all this india watching that all kinds of serious professors are saying that the rss wants uh, hindu rashtra and uh, wants to discriminate against the muslims and so on when in fact the ideological statements by today's uh, rss leaders are entirely secularist are maybe still a bit nationalist but are not specifically hindu indeed you see that that word hindu i mean that gives it away whether they use that or not like you see i myself have written once a hefty tome called decolonizing the hindu mind they have started using that except that they always change hindu to indian decolonizing the indian mind you see they don't believe in in hindu india anymore they only believe in india and so that doesn't have to have any cultural contents that doesn't have to be hindu as long as this territory remains united well you see i'll tell you straight you see i don't care for india at all in the sense that if you tomorrow take a missile and and um, a spaceship and go to the moon and settle there that can be perfectly fit for being your home. It doesn't have to be here. Who knows what will happen to this territory? Uh, one um, yoga teacher I once had from Jodhpur, Dr. Pukrat Sharma, uh, was uh, a bit unhappy at the idolization of India by many of his Western disciples. And he said, what are you so, what do you care about India so much? India will go one day. You see, dharma, that is sanatana, that is eternal, that is worth caring about. India, of course, it is worth caring about in a relative sense. But so to replace sanatana dharma as an ideal with India, you know, to say, no, 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 not Hindu, we are Indian. I mean, that is the, you know, that's very ordinary nationalism, like you find in many countries. And that's just not worth pursuing, in my opinion. You know, whatever else I, I've uttered of criticism about the RSS, you see, this much they had right in their beginning phase. They wanted a Hindu India. And, and I mean, that was, that was not in dispute. That was very obvious that this was the Hindu movement. And so now, you see, they started to disown that word. In the BJP, it already happened formally in 1980, when the BJP was reconstituted. 
in the earlier incarnation of the BJP, the Jiangsang, the process was already underway. Like in the 1960s, they took as their ideology integral humanism, you know, thought of by uh, Dinayal Upadhyay. Now, I think that's very good. You know, this, uh, in, there's nothing wrong with this ideology of integral humanism. And as a name, it is very good because it sounds so innocent. Who could be against integral humanism? And that is precisely why integral humanism, which is the official ideology of the BJP today, is never mentioned in books or papers about BJP. Because you see, they want to criminalize it, they want to depict it as something atrocious. So this innocent ideology is not mentioned. As if you could write a book about the British Labour Party without mentioning socialism. But so, while I think the name integral humanism covers a very positive content, uh, nevertheless, one aspect of the choice of that term is also that it um, avoids the word Hindu. And so that was beginning at that time, we were speaking of the, the, the mid 1960s. But now that is all over the place. You see, the BJP very certainly, but the RSS also to an increasing extent, avoids the word Hindu, avoids the Hindu identity. And here there is, of course, a difference between the leadership and the rank and file. You see, many people feel attacked when I criticize the RSS. Well, no. Most people who have joined the RSS or the BJP at one point were motivated by a desire to serve Hindu Dharma and still have that motivation. It's only the leadership that has uh, veered away from that quite determinedly, like the recent riot about uh, Nupur Sharma. You see, Nupur Sharma is very typical of all these common Hindus who have very correct, sound, healthy Hindu feelings, who don't know anything deep about Islam, but at any rate, see what the problem is. And know in this, in she, for instance, knew that um, the, the child marriage in Islam is legal because the model behavior of the prophet was such that he consummated his marriage with a nine-year-old girl, which is why in many countries, this is not her lie or her invention. No, in many countries, nine is the legal marriage age for women. Like Ayatollah Khomeini at 29 married a 10-year-old girl. Okay, so to say this, there's nothing wrong with this. This is not insulting to the Muslims. This is just factual. And you can quote many Muslim sources on that. So, um, yet you see from BJP mouth, you're never going to hear anything critical about Islam. Ambedkar, he wrote critical about Islam in his uh, book, Thoughts on Pakistan. But you see among the Hindu stalwarts, you're never going to find that even then, even back then, you see, they thought that there was one problem with Islam is that they're not Indian patriots, that they won't partition. Otherwise, there was no talk at all about the contents of Islam. And so here, finally, you see there is someone who says something totally innocent and look already what a riot it created. Now, you see, 
the reaction of Akbaruddin Uwaisi and so on, uh, that's another topic. But the reaction of the BJP leadership, of course, is very significant, that they totally disown any Hindu awareness. So they go very far. Now, the RSS does not go equally far, but it's also evolving very much in that same direction. So yes, they disown the Hindu identity. The fact that all these uh, India watchers abroad and in India itself totally ignore this evolution already says something about either their expertise or their bona fides. You see, perhaps they are just mendacious or perhaps they are ignorant. But yeah, the fact is that the RSS is, has evolved uh, quite, quite seriously. Namaste, Dr. Ensign. As always, uh, very, very an excellent talk, a lot of knowledge. Uh, one observation which I wanted to make, which amused me in, in one of the quotes that you put from we, which is that um, what uh, Guruji has spoken about or written about is exactly what Dr. Ambedkar recommended in the run-up to partition and the discussion with the Nehru and even after independence of the clear transfer of populations. Yeah. And Nehru was insistent that no allowed them to stay back. And then he did give an option of if you're so insistent, uh, this is what we, we have read and heard. If you're so insistent on allowing Muslims to stay back, then don't give them the vote because the community which has voted once for this is going to vote. So that is quite similar to actually what was taken up later. So what is the criticism in that entire paragraph? There's actually nothing. And in today's day and age, if you look at Twitter and online social media, almost all those thoughts are being expressed by the rank and file of the majority community, I would say, in mm. terms of. So how do you yes. see it's contemporaneous? In, and in, in a sense, Guruji has actually expressed what we are now seeing. This is what, what do you think about right. that? Yeah, well, having different nations within one state is always going to be a source of problems. Now, maybe these problems can be solved. And indeed, there are a number of multinational states where you have a solution through some kind of federalism. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, you have to face the fact that this poses a challenge. And so one way out is to simply carve up the territory and say, okay, let's make a homogeneous state for one community and another homogeneous state for another. So uh, while not being absolutely in favor of that solution, Dr. Ambedkar said, well, you see, the facts are such and so we are with our back against the wall. This is the lesser evil. This is what we have to do because the alternative will be worse. The alternative being the situation that you have today, where even after subtracting all the Muslims who are in Pakistan and Bangladesh, even within India, the fact that you have a Muslim community there constantly poses problems. Now, there are different ways of, uh, of solving those problems, but what, what Goldwalker does in that book and in that famous quote is precisely noticing, well, this is an undesirable situation. And so one solution was partition with the corrections supplied by Dr. Ambedkar, where you would have completely homogeneous uh, states in the subcontinent. You see, all those riots that have taken place since then would not have taken place. Uh, the uh, three million people killed in Bangladesh in 1971 would not have happened. So many uh, refugees and so on would all have been avoided. Uh, so yeah, that solution of uh, exchange of population was a lesser evil 
another solution, of course, is that you assimilate all the Muslims in the sense of making them outgrow Islam. Now, that's something that you can't just do like that. You can't make people change their opinions, uh, except if you, you know, feed them historical facts. Here, the education system can make a lot of difference. You see, give people serious science of religion. But you see, science of religion does not mean Karen Armstrong or other whitewashers of certain belief system. No, it means scientific. It means, first of all, saying what is really there, like what Nupur Sharma has done. You see, she has simply given what everybody knows about Muhammad, what is just objectively there, at least to the extent that the Islamic sources are reliable. So that, that may set in motion a certain uh, intellectual or ideological evolution, which incidentally I think is already taking place, but very slowly, and not so much in India. You have a lot of apostasies from Islam in Western countries, in the Arab countries too, but more discreetly. It's a bit dangerous, but it is also happening. In India, it is happening much less because Muslims feel like uh, in a polarized situation vis-a-vis -vis the Hindus, so they don't want to be disloyal to their community. Uh, but ultimately, I think it is, it, is, it is definitely going to happen. But you see, Govalkar did not think in those terms. He accepted the fact of the Muslim community, which most people do, in fact, and which in practice, of course, I also do. I only want to remind people once in a while of this dimension that people can change their, their convictions. And this I say from my own experience, when I was born, you see, my part of uh, Belgium was totally Catholic. And you see, I think I must have been already 18 or so by the time I actually interacted with people who were not of the, the Catholic community. Um, so that was the situation back then. And then I saw in my lifetime, I also very much participated in it in my teenage years, the big walkout from the Catholic Church, so that today practically nobody goes to church anymore. So you see, I know from experience that people can change their mind. And so even the seemingly impregnable fortress of Islam is not immune to this kind of evolution. But so that, um, you see, that presupposes the, the, the fact that people have this mental freedom of evolving. And unfortunately, in the whole discussion about the communal situation in India, practically nobody uh, reminds us of that. Everybody uh, participates in what you could call the racialization of religious differences. You see, a black person may have been born as a slave and being emancipated in the course of his life. He may have been ignorant as a kid, then gone to school and learned a lot and become someone and so on. Okay, he may change enormously during the course of a lifetime, but he was born black and he's going to die black. Okay, now Hindus and Muslims um, have, and certainly secularists have the idea that anyone born as a Muslim is necessarily going to die as a Muslim. 
this Muslim is intrinsically part of his identity. Well, it is not. Uh, however, people like Golwakar, for example, never explored the dimension and effectively accepted this idea that, well, some people happen to be Muslims, some happen to be Hindus. Uh, so that I think is a, a bit of a, a lack of sophistication in his understanding of human nature, but yes, that's what it was. My question is, in India, uh, a no-party system is better than uh, a multi-party system. Uh, is what better than a multi-party system? He says a no-party system is better than a multi-party system. Ha! Yeah, well, um, in the West, you see, the system has grown of uh, dividing the political spectrum in a number of political parties. And, and Westerners are indignant when they hear about a one-party system. You see, throughout the course of, of history, a system with political parties is the exception, not the rule. In the democracies in ancient Greece, there were also no parties. And when parliament started in England or even in Iceland before that, in other places, it was not with political parties. So, I mean, I'm all in favor of thinking through the uh, exploring these possibilities of a non-party democracy. But I don't see how that is going to make a lot of difference to these communal problems. I mean, for the time being, at any rate, this is, this is the system we are stuck with. And it is possible within this system to uh, solve most of the problems that are there. Like for instance, all the discriminations against Hindus in education, in temple management, in the allocation of uh, government jobs and uh, scholarships and so on, all kinds of areas where minorities are privileged. Okay, so these discriminations against Hinduism can perfectly be uh, be solved within the present system. You see, some people say, oh, we need Hindu Rashtra and the constitution isn't uh, native enough and so on. Yeah, well, that, that can be explored in the long term. But you see, what for now should be done is all possible within the present constitution. And with a Hindu party having a very comfortable majority, this should be done right now. And so you see systems without parties or with a different kind of constitution and so on. That's all fine. I am not at all against that. However, right now, you see, I'm more concerned about what is possible and what is being left undone, even though it is possible right now. So for the very short term, I mean, for the viewers who see this at a later date, you see, this is being recorded almost exactly two years ahead of the elections of 2024. So before that, you see, the BJP ought to be able to do a lot. And so its rank and file cares about Hindu issues and wants these things to be done. It's only the leadership that is a problem. And maybe something may happen that, that brings them to their senses in time. You see some people who say, yeah, we have to discard the BJP and count on another party that we still have to found and so on. 
I don't expect much of it, especially because all the Hindus who say that are not doing anything about it. And so you see, this is the situation that you have right now. And instead of dreaming about how everything should be different, no, you see, you take the present situation and do what can be done now. And that's a whole lot. And it is unfortunately not being done, but you can take it up any day.